Well, good morning, everyone. I want to warn you that you might uh, experience a first this morning uh, because I have one of those classic post-Thanksgiving head colds where your eyes are watering, your nose is watering, you feel like you're on the edge of sneezing uh, the whole time. Anybody here in that place with me? few of you. Uh, so uh, I took a Benadryl this morning because I, I wanted to be able to function. I wanted to, to dry my head out. and So you may witness the first preacher you've ever seen fall asleep in his own sermon. <laughs> well, I thought I was going to say, ask Joel if I, if I do fall asleep, Joel, just cover me with a blanket and just take off where I left off, okay? It's all here. Yeah, there are notes. I, I thought maybe I'd really live dangerously and, and take another one when, when I get home and try to operate some heavy machinery. But anyway... I would like to turn your attention this morning to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. Just a beautiful one-line verse. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And of course, this indescribable gift is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as we move toward the Christmas season, toward the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ or our celebration of it, of the incarnation, uh, if you're like me, you have a desire to better comprehend who our Lord is and what his coming has meant to the world and to Christians and to you personally. So I'd like you to imagine this morning that you're having coffee with a friend. This is a friend that you've been witnessing to. And on this particular day, as you're sipping your coffee, he says to you, tell me about God. Describe God to me. And you immediately think, uh, what about the four spiritual laws did you not get last week? Um, or maybe your mind goes to the Roman road, you know, that ev evangelistic tool where you uh, arrange verses in the book of Romans in a systematic way to lead someone to Christ. And so you turn to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and you start to say that, and he stops you and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know the gospel. I know about Jesus, I know about his coming, what I'm asking you to do is describe his personality to me. I want to know what he's like. Is he shy? Is he stern? Is he totally loving or is he critical and sometimes punishing in this life? Does he, does he care about the details of our lives or is he aloof and distant? Is he more like a doting grandfather or a stern parent? Describe him to me. And you think to yourself, wow, where do I start? That is a big job. 
trying to describe the indescribable. In 2005 through 2007, the most comprehensive survey of Americans' religious beliefs ever conducted was done by Baylor University. Called the Baylor Religious Survey, there were about 3,400 people selected randomly around the country, all regions of the country, all walks of life, all demographic uh, variety there, and they were interviewed in depth concerning their values and religious beliefs. Uh, Specifically, they were asked to characterize God's personality. Their findings were were published in uh, this book right here called America's Four Gods by Paul Froese and Christopher Bader, and uh, both professors at Baylor. What they found, I think, is pretty fascinating and can help us as we seek to be faithful witnesses of the true God, the indescribable. So after acquainting you with their findings, I want to make four points this morning that I think their findings help us understand. For those of you who are listening uh, via the web, either right now or in the days to come, I want to encourage you to get the PowerPoint. You can contact our our church office, and uh, Debbie or I will get that to you. So these researchers in the Baylor study start by revealing that for Americans, the existence of God is really not in question because they found that 95% of Americans say they believe in God. The simple fact that nearly 95% of Americans say they believe in God undermines any notion that we are engaged in a holy war over the existence of God. We might, however, be in a war over who God is. Isn't that an interesting statement? Um, 95% of us in America say we believe in God, but the question is, who is God? That's where we differ. Um, As they analyzed their data, they discovered that just as the existence of God is not in question, neither is there a significant question that God is a loving God. Look at this. 85% of Americans believe in a loving God. Because nearly all Americans think that God is loving, a person's belief that God is loving tells us next to nothing about them, simply by virtue of the fact that everyone else believes that God is loving too. So this number was higher than I expected. What they found was that instead, beliefs about God's judgment and his engagement are widely disputed and render a rich portrait of Americans' images of who God is. Specifically, two questions reign supreme in their study. To what extent does God judge the world, and to what extent is God engaged with the world? How we answer these two questions determines our worldviews, how we live our lives, as well as guide our political views on contentious issues. So here is how the model looks 
to describe or show America's four images of God. You see here four views of God, the benevolent God, upper left, the authoritative God, upper right, the distant God, lower left, and the critical God, lower right. I want you to notice uh, the arrows between the dark blue circles. There's an arrow going up and down that is measuring how engaged people believe God to be. Can you see it? Well, I'm sorry. Let me do it this way. You can see the words more and less engaged, I assume. Okay, well, there. Can you see the cursor? Okay, so there's an arrow running through here measuring how, uh, of course, more engaged are the top two and less engaged are the bottom uh, two. And then on the horizontal, there's less judgmental to the left and more judgmental to the right. Now, we need to dig, dig down a little bit. What, what do these terms mean? So here's, here's what they mean. The benevolent God is one who is lovingly engaged in this world, uh, but really doesn't judge human behavior much or at all, both in this life and in the life to come. These are the people who are absolutely focused on the love of God without any uh, serious belief that he's authoritative or judge or judges human behavior. The upper right is the authoritative God. This is one who is lovingly engaged in this world, but does judge human behavior, sometimes in this life and certainly in the next. The distant God is one who's not engaged in this world and does not judge human behavior. So this is the deist view, where God kind of wound up the universe and then just went off somewhere and uh, is not paying attention. And then there's the critical God, the one who is not engaged in this world, but will judge human behavior in the next life. So let me give you some examples of all four of these. The benevolent God was described, they used uh, Esquire Rushnell. Uh, that's really how he spells his first name. And he's made a living talking about um, the beauty and the goodness and the love of God. And uh, he says God is giving us God winks, a term he trademarked, every day, where God is telling us in little ways, I'm here and I care about you. Uh, that's not, I mean, we experience those things. You ever pull into a busy say, Walmart parking lot, and there's the prime parking spot. And you go, thank you, Lord. <laughs> you know, uh, thank you for saving that for me. That he would call that a God wink. I'm here and I care about you. God is an ever-present life coach who does not chastise. He says, I cannot, I just cannot conceive of anger coming from God. Okay, then there's the authoritative God. Peter, a Pentecostal from Alabama, says, I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. I believe God was in control of that. I believe he could have stopped it. I also believe God allowed it. 
I believe it got the whole country's attention. And Peter, under this view, would certainly probably go on to talk about God's mercy and his saving miracles for many people during Katrina as well. The distant God is typified by Benjamin Franklin. Here's what Benjamin Franklin said. I imagine it a great vanity in me to suppose that the supremely perfect does in the least regard such an inconsiderable nothing as man. It is impossible for me to have any positive, clear idea of the incomprehensible. I cannot conceive that the Infinite Father expects or requires worship from us since he is infinitely above it. That's Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin is well known in our history as being a deist. And then the critical God. This is where you remember um, God is distant, but he does judge. He will hold mankind accountable for our deeds in the next life. Pope Benedict XVI addressed drug dealers in a speech in Brazil in 2007, and he said, God will call you to account for your deeds, meaning in the afterlife. Human dignity cannot be trampled upon in this way. So here we are with... Um, One last slide that hopefully fills in some gaps. Like, for example, you might be wondering where agnostics and atheists come out in these four views. I want you to see that 24% of our population believes in a benevolent God. Again, where there's all love, no judgment. 31% of our entire population is in the authoritative camp. Uh, 24% is in the distant God camp. And what they said about agnostics, you know, agnostics are people who say, I don't know. I don't know if God exists or not. I'm not going to come down on that. Well, these, these, study, these researchers said if you press agnostics, if you question them deeply, you find that, in fact, they do believe in God. They're really, what they believe in is the distant God. So there's a certain number of them in this 24%. And then 16% believe in the critical God, that uh, he is distant from this life, from this world currently, but he will judge in the next. And then down in the lower left, you see the atheists. These are true atheists, people who truly believe that God does not exist. There's 5% of those. So let's review one more time before we move into the application points that I want to make. So there are four views of God in America. 95% of Americans believe in God. 85% believe he's a loving God. The benevolent God is one who's lovingly engaged in the world but really doesn't judge human behavior. The authoritative God is one who's lovingly engaged in the world but does ju judge human behavior, sometimes in this life and certainly in the next. The distant God, one who's engaged in this world and does not judge be human behavior, and the critical God, the one who's not engaged in this world but will judge human behavior in the next life. So I've been pondering these four views of God 
and wondering what we can glean from them, will this help us in some way describe the indescribable? How can we know our view of God is clear and correct and righteous? How can we be faithful witnesses of the true God? And, uh, of course, we turn to the Scriptures, don't we? We want what we believe to be based in the Scriptures. We want to know why we believe what we believe. So I want to make four points. And the first one is this. We must reject the images of God below that horizontal line. We need to reject the distant God and the critical God. Both views say that God has not entered the world in any significant way, that he is not engaged, and yet the scriptures are clear, aren't they, that God has engaged this world in the coming of Jesus Christ. God has. That's what we're celebrating this Advent season is the coming of our Lord. And so he, he is not a distant God. Even if we put our personal faith aside, even if we put the times God has spoken to us, the God, times God has rescued us personally, the time that he saved us, even if we put all that aside, we still know that he's an engaged God because Jesus Christ came in the world to save us. He has engaged through the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, which is what we're celebrating this morning. Just a few scriptures cited here make this point. Philippians uh, 2, 6 through 8 say this. Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with a thing to be grasped as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John 3.16, the verse we love so much, For God so loved the world, say it with me, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God has entered the world. And then John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the Tom Lotz translation of that verse. And the Word became flesh and hung out with us. And how could we ever agree with the critical God view? Remember, the critical God view sort of has, uh, well, it has something we could agree with, and that is that there will be judgment in the life to come. But just taking, but I want to focus on that in that view as well, God is not here. He's distant, he's gone, and he's also critical in the sense that he's looking for someone to punish. He's wanting to punish, he's wanting to be to be critical. But how could we believe that when we read Romans 5, verse 8? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or Hebrews four fifteen, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. How about 1 Peter 5, 7? Cast all your cares upon him because what? He cares for you. And then Hebrews 13, 5, second part of the verse, he will never leave you or forsake you. So how could we say, how could we ever take the position that God is both distant and a critical, punishing God? I, I have a, I hope you can see it down low underneath the X's, I have a note here about First Corinthians, excuse me, First Kings 18.27. This is where uh, Elijah is confronting the prophets of, of Baal. And he's mocking them about their God who is not engaged. Uh, And uh, you you remember the 450 priests of Baal were jumping around the fire, or not the fire, but the the fire they had laid without lighting it. Uh, And the deal was God, the real God, will show up and start a fire without us touching it. And so the 450 prophets are jumping around, they're dancing, they're leaping around the fire they start cutting on themselves to induce Baal to come and light the fire. And here's what, uh, here's what Elijah says. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, why don't you call out with a louder voice if he is a god? Maybe he is occupied or maybe he's relieving himself in the woods. Either he... You know, maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and you need to wake him up. They cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. Elijah was mocking these prophets that their God was not engaged. And then, of course, he calls on the living God and the fire comes and consumes the wood and the meat. We cannot accept that he is disengaged or critical in the common understanding. No, our job is to declare in describing the indescribable to radically proclaim that our God has entered the world. He's engaged the world, and he's engaged us personally through the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God created man. He engaged with man. He saved man. He engages with us now through his Holy Spirit, and he will be with us, or and we will be with him for eternity. We serve an engaged, powerful God. Hallelujah. And I think this is the unique power, you guys, of our message to the world, is that we love and believe in a God who is engaged intimately with us. Oh, how the world longs for that message, that God is alive and he wants a relationship with us. He wants intimacy with us. He wants to communicate with us. He wants to teach us about himself and care for us. How can anyone not want a God like that? But we must reject 
these two images of God below the line. Number two, we've got to stay above the line when we're under trial or affliction. When we're under heavy trial or affliction, so often we start to doubt the three things that we're seeing about God above the line, don't we? We, we doubt His goodness. If the load is heavy, we might doubt His engagement. And we might doubt His power to rescue. His authority, that He is God. Remember the man in the Bible that said, you know, heal my son if you can. And uh, Jesus reacted to that and said, if you can. Uh, so here are some of the things that we, where our mind goes when we go below the line. Where are you, God? The distant God. Where are you, God? Are you still engaged with me? Don't you love me? Has he forgotten me? Did I miss God? Anybody ever wonder some of those things? I really dislike, I will use the word hate, that, I, that, that last uh, question that people ask and churches ask is, did we miss God? Did I miss God? As if God is rolling and he rolled on by. And now... it's not true that he will never leave me or forsake me. He has left. And I'm just left in his wake, wondering, has he passed me by? Did I miss him? So, uh, I really don't like that last one. And then on the other side, what did I do wrong? We start to get critical of ourselves, don't we? we? We might have prayed really hard about a decision And then the decision, after we execute it, it seems to go to hell. And so, what did I do wrong? Are you punishing me? I must not have enough faith. Anybody ask these questions? So we doubt his goodness, his power, his engagement. But... Can we hang on? Can we stay above the line no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the adversity to the three realities about God above the line, that he's engaged, that he's loving, and that he's all-powerful? You know, so often we make the mistake of thinking that if we are obedient, life should go smoothly for us. How, How many have made that mistake? If I'm... If I'm obedient, if I'm following hard after God, if I'm listening to his voice, I should be on easy street. And yet, the reality is, the Bible says the opposite is more likely to happen. That if we're obedient, things are going to start getting stirred up. Problems are start, you you know, wherever the Lord is, the enemies there trying to uh, mess things up. And so what I want to say here is when you're living above the line, trying to fight that good fight of faith, don't forget that circumstances are not a reliable indicator of how obedient to God you're being. Isn't that an important thing to remember? Very important. 
So let's stay above the line when times are tough. And remember that circumstances are an unreliable gauge of how well we are pleasing the Lord. Just a verse to verify that point in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 10. The Lord warns Israel and says, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. He says, then watch yourself lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So easy street tends to make us forget the Lord. And uh, it becomes all about us um, and how blessed of God we are. So, number two, we've got to stay above the line when under affliction. Number three, the benevolent only view must surrender to the authoritative view. Now, by that, I don't mean obliterated, but I mean the benevolent view where God is love, which he is, needs to move over into the authority camp because the benevolent view, remember, says God doesn't judge anything. There's no discipline. Uh, There's no reproof. He's just like a life coach, constantly encouraging us. Um, When I first saw this research presented, I wanted to be in the benevolent camp. And you guys have that reaction too? Like, oh, I want to be over there. That's where the nice people are. That's where they have the fun. Uh, I'm a little worried about this authoritative group. You know, they, they could be legalistic. They could be strict. They could be, oh... Maybe they're not having any fun. Uh, But when I really understood these different images of God and how they were defined and articulated by people's answers, and that the benevolent view, in that view, there's no real judgment, only mercy, forgiveness, encouragement, but no loving consequences from God's hand. No exercise of discipline from a loving father. I didn't want to be in that camp anymore. The percentages you see there are for evangelical Christians this time. That's what we're called by the world and by religious demographers. We're called evangelicals. 25% of us believe in a loving, engaged God who doesn't punish, judge, or discipline. A parent who is like that would be called what? What? Not rotten. I I, I wasn't thinking of rotten. I was thinking of indulgent. You know, where there's no discipline, uh, a parent is considered indulgent, right? Um, 50% of us believe in a loving, engaged God who does punish at times or judges, or disciplines, and 25% down in the lower left corner are apparently being very naughty evangelical Christians. 
hanging out below the line somewhere. But we know from the scriptures that along with God's consuming love, he is also judge, Lord, and king. In short, he's God. He will judge, he disciplines, he will repay, he will not be mocked. So Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. What I'm trying to do now is articulate some verses that will cause you to agree, to agree if you're unsure that the benevolent view must surrender to the authoritative view. John 3.36, you know, we, we quote John uh, uh, 3, what, what is it, 36? No. What is the, uh, I'm having a meltdown. What is, what is the verse about God so loved the world? 3.16, okay. The last verse of that chapter says something very different. It says this. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then Hebrews 12, 5 through 7, and this one really touches our hearts. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Don't you want the discipline of the Lord when you need it? I know you do. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? So the love-only view of God is not God. This view must surrender to the authoritative God, where God, yes, God is love, as 1 John says, but he is more than love. He is holy love. He is intensely loving, and he is all authority. May his great name be praised. And then the last point is to be faithful witnesses as we describe the indescribable, we need to highlight three things, at least in a broad way. And that is that God is authoritative, he is benevolent, and he is engaged. Um, when God introduced himself to Moses the very first time, Moses said, what is your name? God said, I am who I am, right? Um, A little later in Exodus 34, um, God and Moses have another very intimate conversation. And Moses says, God, show me your goodness. Show me your glory. In essence, he was saying, show me who you are. Show me your essence. Show me your nature. And I want to read to you what the Lord said. The Lord agreed to do that, but he put him in a cleft of a rock uh, and said, "You, you can see my back as I go by. And here's what the Lord said. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Sounds like a loving God, a benevolent God, 
who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But now he turns to the authority and he says, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So we see here when God introduces himself to Moses, these are the three qualities that he's telling Moses about himself. I am loving. I am God and judge. And I'm also engaged. Isn't that beautiful? So here we have isolated three characteristics of our indescribable God. This very, the very same traits he revealed to Moses that he is God and has all authority, that he's extremely loving and merciful, and he's intimately engaged with each one of us. So if we should be asked at the coffee shop or at the supermarket, or at the gas station to describe the indescribable. May we remember the one true God who has all authority and will judge, is extremely loving and personal and deeply engaged with every single person. His eye is on the sparrow. Who would not want to know? A great God such as that. So I, this last slide, well, you see, the, you see the thoughts up there. God loves me and you. Christ died for me and you. He will never leave us or forsake us. God is love. Oral Roberts used to say, God is a good God. God is for us. Jesus Christ lives ever to intercede for us. And then on the authority side, he's holy. He's in control. He alone is judge, he's sovereign, he is Lord, and we walk in the fear of the Lord. So this last side, slide is the happy TCFer. There he is, knowing that God is authoritative, extremely loving, and engaged in our lives. Could we pray together? Heck, let's, let's stand up, and if, if you can, or would like to and just honor the Lord that way. Father, we thank you for reminding us and re-revealing your very nature to us today through your word. And as we move toward celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God's only son coming into the world to save us from our sins. We, we want to celebrate these three attributes of your nature. Lord, we just surrender ourselves to the reality that you alone are God, that you are holy, that you are judge, that you are jealous, that you are sovereign, that you do have expectations and commandments uh, for us to fill. We remember John 14, 21. He who 
loves me keeps my commandments. He who keeps my commandments, he it is who loves me. We thank you that you define what love is, not us. We thank you that you love us enough to discipline us when we need it. We thank you, Lord, that you will judge the wicked, that you are a righteous judge, and yet you show loving kindness and mercy to thousands and thousands and thousands of generations. We thank you, Lord, that you are such a loving God. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. I pray that as my brothers and sisters wake up tomorrow morning, they would just remember that, that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. May your mercy just wash over us, Lord, every morning when we need healing, we need motivation, we need joy. Help us to remember your mercies are new every morning. Thank you, Lord, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that you are intimately acquainted with all our ways. Even before there's a word on our tongues, Lord, you know it altogether. Thank you that not a sparrow falls to the ground, Jesus said, without the heavenly Father knowing it. And that even the very heads, hairs on our head are numbered. Thank you that you chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Thank you for choosing us, Lord. How? That's just too wonderful. It's just too wonderful for us. Thank you for forgiving our sins. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he separated our transgressions from us. Thank you, Lord, that you are a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We thank you for your amazing and extreme love. And then, Father, we thank you that you are engaged with us. Thank you that on a personal level, we see evidences of your, uh, your involvement in our lives. Little signs or big miracles. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit in us that's teaching us to follow you and to love you and to look for you and to see you. Thank you that you desire that personal relationship with us. Thank you again for giving us the wonderful gift of salvation and the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you, we honor you, we praise you as we Move into this Christmas season. We ask you to help us further comprehend you, our indescribable God, and the indescribable gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.